property outline. There are five theories of property, and that's the labor theory, which says that each person is entitled to the property they produced with their own labor. The personhood theory, which says that each person has a close emotional connection to certain tangible things. There's the civic Republican theory, which um, means owning land allows people to exercise political judgment. Um, also, owning land makes you want to be more involved with your community. Then there is the utilitarian theory, and this recognizes property. It says we recognize property in order to maximize the overall happiness or utility of society. And then there's the first come first possession. And this is that the first person to possess the property is the owner of it. Okay, so there are two kinds of property and that can be real property or personal property. So real property would include the land and fixtures on the land that cannot be moved, like homes, trees, fences. Um, and then personal property is um, any tangible, movable object that's not attached to the land. So that could be like jewelry, art, basically anything else. Um, for the rule statement for the law of discovery is that discovery gives the discoverer the right of ownership of the land. So discovery can be confirmed by conquest or purchase as against all other European countries. And the rule statement for accession is when one person uses labor or materials to improve a chattel owned by another, the person who improved the property is the owner. So the new owner may have to pay the old owner the fair market value of the property that they use in the first place, but otherwise it becomes theirs. Um, there are four key implications for the bundle of rights. Um, so property rights are not defined by the are defined by the government. So that means your right to property is only recognized as far as the government recognizes it. Uh, property rights are not absolute. So um, you don't have the absolute right to um, transfer your property. For example, like guns, you can't just um, sell your gun to anybody that you want. Um, property rights can be divided. So that's when, um, like an example of this is. A person renting a house will have the right to like use it, but the actual owner and the right to transfer is going to be held with the owner. And then property rights evolve as law changes, and that kind of goes hand in hand with how property rights are, are, are defined by the government. So as the government um, decides to change their outlook on property rights, um, your the rights of people will change. So. The right to transfer, which is also known as alienability, um, generally any owner may freely transfer or alienate any of their property to anyone. There are exceptions, and that is that the law may restrict who can transfer or obtain property. So again, going back to the situation with guns, like you can't just um, sell your gun to a former felon. Um, and then there are things like with a law degree, you can't transfer your law degree. So the right to transfer alienability rule statement would be any owner may freely transfer or alienate any of her property to anyone unless otherwise restricted by the law. Then we have the right to exclude, and that is that each owner has an across-the-board right to exclude any other person from their property. This has been characterized by the Supreme Court of the United States as one of the most essential 
essential bundle in the most essential in the bundle of sticks. Um, so with the right to exclude, if somebody is viol- like um, violating your right to exclude, they are trespassing. So that's when any individual voluntarily enter. So when an individual voluntarily enters the land that's owned by another, there are no exceptions that apply. So you can't argue that I did not know that this land was owned by somebody else. It's still trespass. Um, it doesn't, yeah. Okay. And then we're going to also, this also does not apply when, um, like it doesn't permit discrimination and access to places of public accommodation. So a trespass, there, there are privileged kinds of trespass. And that would be when the entry is done with the consent of the owner. Um, so that would be like when you're inviting somebody onto your property, um, when the entry is encouraged by public policy and that's like state v shack where, um, the farm workers needed access to healthcare and legal aid. And then the entry is justified by the necessity to prevent a more serious harm to persons or property. So that would be like the cops, um, running across your land to chase down a suspect. Um, and then also if you do not voluntarily enter the land, um, it's not trespass. So if somebody pushes you onto the land, then that's not, you're not trespassing. So the rule statement for the right to use is that a landlord A landowner has the right to use his or her property in any way he or she wishes as long as he or she does not harm the right of others. However, you cannot have a spite fence. A spite fence is a useless structure on the property with the sole purpose of annoying and harassing a neighbor. So if you are trying to figure out whether or not it's a spite fence, you have to ask, is the object a fence? Um, that's in quotes, Um, you have to ask if the object was created solely out of spite and if you you have to find out if the object has any use. So if there's any potential use, then the fence will be allowed even if it was built with the intent to irritate a neighbor. So Um, Then we get into private nuisances. So the rule statement for private nuisance is that it is intentional, non-trespassery, it is unreasonable, and for unreasonable, you have to look at whether the gravity of the harm outweighs the utility of the actor's conduct, and there has to be a substantial interference with the use and enjoyment of someone else's land. Then we have the right to destroy. So Under public policy, you would want to look at the value of the property and look at the detriment to society's interests in comparison with the value of destroying the property. So animals are not subject to destroy and there are some kind of laws, sometimes like historic preservation laws that do not allow you to destroy property. So... And so again, to like go through the like official rule statement that I would use during the exam is that people have the right to destroy their property, but it is limited by federal and state law. 
Sometimes they will consider how valuable the property is to the general public or specific individuals when deciding whether or not to destroy property. Okay, so now we're getting into adverse possession um, and the memorization trick that I use here is a horse on every corner. So there's actual, which means that it is used the way a reasonable owner would use it, the adverse possessor would. Um, and you have to look at the character, nature, and location of the land and like the type of conduct that the person is doing on the land. Um, then you, then the, um, possession has to be exclusive. So neither the true owner, owner or the general public may possess the land. Open and notorious means that basically if the true owner was doing like reasonable, responsible checks on their land, they would be able to see that somebody is there, um, possessing their land. And then you have adverse and hostile which means it's not authorized by the owner. Um, and there are a few different tests that we'll get into a little bit later. Um, for continuous, it has to be continuous for the statutory period. So most um, uh, jurisdictions have a set statutory, statutory period. Um, and the continuity um, requirement also goes into the character, nature, and location of the land. So um, you, would, you would look at what the land is typically used for, and how, again, how would a normal owner continuously use the land. So basically the point of adverse possession is that it allows someone who has been possessing the land of someone else for an extended amount of time to claim legal title without compensation. So there are policy reasons behind adverse possession, and that is that it prevents frivolous claims it can correct title defects, it encourages development, and it protects personhood. So protecting frivolous claims goes into the idea that if somebody like hasn't been on their land to the point where somebody has been possessing their land and they didn't know about it or they were letting it happen, like, you know, the courts aren't, don't want to have to deal with that. Like, it's kind of petty. Um, and then you have correcting title defects. So sometimes titles are wrong. And so if you are adversely possessing the land that you like actually own or that you were meant to own, then adverse possession can correct that for you. Um, it encourages development in the sense that if somebody leaves their land long enough for somebody to adversely possess their land, they're obviously not using it very well. And if somebody else is going to come on there and use the land in a better way, we want to encourage that. And it also protects personhood because people can be really connected to the land that they are living on and that they are putting work into. Um, and then we have to remember that California has a higher standard for actual possession. So in California, if we have a case in California for the test, um, actual possession is shown by cultivation, improvement, and substantially enclosing the property. Then we get into color of title and color of title. The rule statement is that it's a benefit given to protect people who have been given faulty deeds. Um, you still have to meet the five elements of adverse possession. Hostile is presumed and you might end up getting a shorter limitation period for continuous. And regarding exclusivity, if the original owner comes back on the property, and occupies another portion of the property, 
that does not break exclusivity. That owner, the original owner, would need to prove what area they're occupying and then they would get to keep that area and the adverse possessor would get to keep the rest of it by color of title. So the rule statement for adverse and hostile, um, you would go into three tests or one of the three tests. So a good faith test is that the adverse possessor truly believes that the land is theirs. A bad faith test or the intentional trespass test is that they know the land is not theirs and they don't care they're on it anyway. And the objective test, which is the majority rule, I do believe, is that they do not care, they don't care about the motive of the adverse possessor. The objective test is, are you on the land without the owner's permission? Then for continuous, so the standard to meet for continuous depends on the location, nature, and character of the land. So if you have a, um, for example, if you have like a summer home and someone is adversely possessing it, but only in the summer, that's not going to break their continuity. Um, then we get into tacking. So the adverse possession period of two or more successive occupants may be added together to meet the statutory period. This usually requires some conveyance of property and some jurisdictions require privity. And privity is the reasonable relationship between the two parties. Um, then we have disabilities. So when an owner is unable to sue an adverse possessor because of a disability, the court wants to give them the chance to sue. So the general rules for disability is that they extend the statutory period. Um, it is limited. It limits the time in which a suit can be brought. Um, death will end all disabilities. Um, the disability must exist at the beginning of adverse possession of the adverse possession period. Um, disabilities cannot be tacked and disabilities cannot shorten the standard period of adverse possession. There are two reasons that will lead to the to like reverting back to the original statutory period and that is death and when a disability shortens the adverse possession period. So there are five kinds of disability. So that's insanity, which is a legal term. Um, imprisonment, uh, being a minority, which is under like being under the age of 18. Lacking mental capacity and being in the armed services. So then we're going to get into the rule of capture. And the rule of capture, so it, it applies to wild animals, a.k.a. animus revertendi. Um, on unknown land, even if those wild animals had been tamed. So there are exceptions to that on the next slide. Um, awards property rights to the person who brings an animal, a wild animal under their certain control. So possession requires intent to possess and actually controlling the property. Ownership rights end when the wild animal escapes back into the wild. So exceptions to the rule of capture. So again, it doesn't apply to animus revertendi, so that those are animals that have a habit for returning, such as dogs or cats. Um, tamed wild animals may be returned to the original owner if there is an indica of, in, of ownership. This would be like a collar or like a leash, maybe, like if your dog got away while you were walking them. Um, 
location of capture may indicate that the animals are already owned by another and can be returned to the original owner. The example she used here in class was um, the movie Madagascar. And um, obviously, if you see lions running around New York City, you're going to know that they do not belong to you and they're not wild animals. Um, they probably belong to somebody. And if they don't, that's really weird. Um, Rationé solely is landowners can have, landowners have constructive possession of the wild animals on their property. Um, they cannot be captured by another when they are on somebody else's property, but the owner of the land must actually capture the animal to acquire the title. So then we have, um, finders cases. So you would look at the type of the property that is lost, the character of the finder, and the place that the property was found. So finders have two duties, and that is to keep the chattel safe and to return it to prior possessors on demand. And a previous owner will always have superior rights to ownership, with the original owner having the most superior rights. There are four kinds of lost property. So... If a property is lost, that means the owner unintentionally and involuntarily parted with the property. So it would be like dropping something out of your pocket or your bag. Um, and in this case, the finder obtains possession until the owner of the property, or sorry, unless the owner of the property it was found on exhibits intent and engages and acts to control the property. Um, if property is mislaid, the owner voluntarily and knowingly places it somewhere and then unintentionally forgets about it. I call this the ADHD type of lost property. This is something I do all the time. And um, the owner of the place it was found possesses the object over the finder. Um, abandoned property is when the owner knowingly relinquishes, it, relinquishes all right title and interest to the property. And the finder obtains ownership against all others, including the former owner. And then there's the treasure trove, which the owner conceals it in a hidden location very long ago. We're not going to be tested on that. So then we're going to get into who gets priority of the found property on owned land. So it would be the resident owner, then the owner, then the invitee, the employee, and then a trespasser. And I like to think about this in terms of like, um, like bringing people over to my apartment. If somebody lost, um, some property on or mislaid some property in my apartment, I would hold on to it because, um, as, as the resident owner, the renter, um, because if my friend wanted to find their property, they would come back to me, um, to look for it. And then it would be to the owner, um, because again, that would be like the next logical place that it would go. And then, you know, the invitee, someone else who is there, um, an employee in the home would come after that. Somebody who works in my house, um, and then a trespasser. So everyone else. So that's kind of the, um, rule for who gets it. Then we have, um, so there are, to adversely possess chattels, you still have the five elements of um, 
adverse possession, so actual, exclusive, open and notorious, hostile, and continuous for a statutory period. Um, the open and notorious element is a little bit different. So um, the weakest way to meet the open and notorious element would be to use the item as the ordinary owner would. Um, a little bit stronger would be to display it regularly in a public forum. And the strongest way to meet the open and notorious element is that you would use it in a way that would notify the owner of the location of the property. Um, and another thing that goes into this as well is that um, if you at all alter the property in a way that makes it like impossible to identify or that would kind of hide or in general if you're just hiding the property um, then it destroys adverse possession um, because an owner might be looking for it and if you've hidden it or if you've changed its appearance in a way so that it is hidden then um, you know they don't have the opportunity to get it back. So there are three kinds of statutes of limitations. So there's the traditional rule, which starts after the conversion of the property. There's the demand and refusal rule. So that starts after someone has demanded their property be returned and the possessor refuses to return it. And then there's also the discovery rule. And that's when the owner knew or should have known that the property was gone. I do believe that the traditional rule is the one to use when um, we're talking about majority of jurisdictions. So the only way, oh, this goes back to conceal, it's called being concealment or concealed. The only way that a statute of limitations can be told is if the chattel is uh, concealed. And then concealment is anything that would make the chattel less likely to be found by its true owner, which is very difficult to prove. So there are policy reasons behind the adverse possession of chattels and this avoids sale claims. So receipts are harder to save than with real property. Um, it corrects title defects, so usually with between two good faith users. Um, it encourages the productive use of property, so the adverse possessor would use it more intensely than the original owner. And it protects personhood, so people have people are connected to items. Um, and then we get into um, inter vivos gifts and testamentary gifts. And so inter vivos gifts are gifts that are made during the donor's lifetime and testamentary gifts are gifts effective after the donor's death. So the three elements of an inter vivos gift is donative intent, which is the intent to make an immediate transfer of property, delivery, which must be delivered so the donor parts with dominion and control, and acceptance, which is mostly presumed. There are three types of delivery. Um, so manual delivery is when the donor physically transfers the possession of the item to the donee. Um, if it is reasonably able to be manually delivered, it must be manually delivered no matter what. Um, constructive delivery is when the donor physically transfers the donee an object that provides access to the gifted item, and that would be like a key. And then there's symbolic delivery. And that's when the donor physically transfers the donee an object that represents or symbolizes the gifted item. And that would be like um, a, a title or, yeah. <laughs> um, so then you can, there can be like a third party involved in the delivery, helping either the donee or the donor. So when the third party is working on behalf of the giver of the gift, the delivery is complete when the third party gives the gift to the receiver. 
when the third party is working on behalf of the receiver, the delivery is complete when the third party receives a gift. So revocable gifts. All gifts are revocable except engagement rings, and that just depends on the state. And then we have gifts causa mortis. So for a gift cause mortis, you would need donative intent, delivery acceptance, and donor's anticipation of imminent death. So a gift, so the rule statement that you would use for a gift cause mortis is that it is a gift of personal property, it is revocable until death, and it is in anticipation of the donor's imminent death. There are four elements, again, the donative intent, delivery, acceptance, and expected imminent death. So death has to be expected within a reasonable time. It will still be effective even if the donor does not die when they expected. If the death occurs within the same approximate time frame or the cause of death is related to the anticipated peril. This will override the, the will and they can choose to revoke it if they live. Some states don't like to recognize gifts causa mortis because it does override the, override the will and because there's no paper trail or um, witness necessary. Okay, then we get into the modern freehold and non-freehold estates. So you can transfer in three ways, by will, or sorry, by deed, by will, and then by interstate succession. So when you transfer by deed, it's called a conveyance or a grant, and the parties involved are the grantor and the grantee. Um, and you would say you convey or you grant. Then we have transfer by will, um, interstate succession, or sorry, a transfer by will, which it says testate. I don't know what that means. Um, it's called a devise, and you would say, I devise this to you, and the parties are the testator and the devisee, and the person will not receive this until the, the like, giver, until the testator dies. Um, transfer by interstate succession is to descend, um, and it is when a person dies without a will, so there's no document and the parties are the heirs. So you will find out who the heirs are after the person dies. So there are six and a half present possessory estates, um, and that is the fee simple absolute, the life estate, the life estate per autre vie, the fee tail, um, and then you get into the defeasible fees, which are the fee simple determinable, the fee simple subject to a condition subsequent, and fee simple subject to executory limitations. So the first one, fee simple absolute, an example of this is O conveys to G and her heirs. So the fee simple absolute is the holder of all the bundle of the sticks forever. You would assume a fee simple absolute unless it's indicated otherwise. A life estate, an example of this is O conveys to G for life. You can only use, enjoy, and alienate the property. You cannot devise or descend it. It is measured by the life of a person and ends with their death. Then the life estate per autre vie is O conveys to G for the life of H. So again, this person can only use and join, alienate the property. They cannot devise or descend. It is measured by the life of a third person and ends with their death. So if somebody, another like kind of fact in here, if somebody transfers their life estate, um, the person they transfer it to only has the right to the property as long as the 
original person would have. So if you, if, if O conveys their life estate to G, then G only has the life estate as long as O lives. So that kind of creates a life estate per autre V in a way. Um, then you have a fetale, and this is when O conveys to B and the heirs of his body. And this is a way for the owner to keep the land within the family for generations. It's almost extinct in the United States, except for in Delaware, Maine, um, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. And the line of, if the line of descendants expires, then it reverts to O, the original owner. So then we have the fee simple defeasible and the three kinds, um, as we talked about earlier. So basically, um, the difference between an absolute and a defeasible um, estate is that the absolute means the transfer is not subject to limitations, restrictions, or conditions, and a defeasible estate is when the land is transferred conditionally. So a fee simple determinable um, automatically ends when an event or condition occurs. They have the right of possession, alien, it's alienable, divisible, and descendable. Um, an example is O conveys to G and her heirs so long as Alaska remains part of the United States. And you would look for words of duration. Um, that would be so long as, while, until, and during. A fee simple subject to a condition subsequent gives the transferor the right to re-enter and reclaim the property upon a certain condition or event. Um, it's alienable, defeasible, and descendable. You would look for the words provided that, but if on the condition that, so any um, word that shows a condition. Um, and the an example is O conveys to G and her heirs provided that Mike Dunleavy remains Alaska's governor. Um, fee simple subject to executory limitation is when an estate is created in a transferee followed by a future interest in another transferee. You would look for a third party here, which is the executory interest. Um, and the signal words are going to be the same as the other. Again, just look for the third party. Um, and this would be O conveys to B and her heirs so long it is, as it is used as a farm, then to C. So if a fee simple defeasible has ambiguous language, then the courts assume that it is a fee simple subje subject to a condition subsequent because they went to avoid automatic forfeiture because that reduces utility with the absolute estates. Um, the court assumes that it is a fee simple, um, sorry, that it is a light, light fee simple absolute because again, that um, the forfeiture or yeah, would would reduce utility. Then we have the modern non-freehold estates. The only one we worry about in this class right now is term of years. And that is only for a certain amount of time. It's alienable only for the duration of the term. And it's always followed by a future interest. So O conveys to B for 10 years. Um, okay, so then we have three kinds of waste and that's voluntary waste which is an affirmative act that significantly reduces the value of the property. So that would be like burning it or um, basically anything that if you like change the property so that, it, that it's reduced um, in value. Um, then permissive waste, which is the failure to take reasonable care to protect the estate. So if you basically just let it deteriorate, 
Um, and then ameliorative waste is an affirmative act that leads to a substantial change in the property and increases it its value. Um, a lot of jurisdictions don't really worry about ameliorative waste very much because, um, again, it increases value. So then we have three kinds of restraints on alienation. They are not allowed. So if a court sees them, they will be removed. Then you remove the violating part and determine what type of, um, uh, what's it called? state it is, I guess, um, at that point. So you have the disabling restraint, which is a restraint that prevents the transferee from transferring her interest. Um, an example of this would be O conveys to B and any conveyance by B is void. Then there's the forfeiture restraint, and that would be a restraint that leads to a forfeiture of the title of the transferee if the transferee attempts to transfer her interest. So that would be O conveys to B, but if B ever tries to sell the estate, then to D. Okay, and then a promissory restraint is a restraint that stipulates that the transferee promises not to sell, promises not to transfer her interest. O conveys to B, and B promises that she will not sell the estate. Okay, then the transferor, transferor has um, rights, and those are, there's three. It's a reversion, a possibility of a reverter, and the right of entry. So a reversion is a fee simple that is certain to become possessory. Um, a possibility of a reverter is when the property reverts to the grantor upon the occurrence of an event or the fulfillment of a condition and a right of entry, which is when the occurrence of an event or the fulfillment of a condition allows the grantor, or sorry, um, when the occurrence of an event or the fulfillment of a condition allows the grantor to enter the land and take affirmative steps towards retaking possession. So then you have a remainder, which is a future interest that waits patiently until the termination of the preceding possessory estate. It is capable of becoming possessory, but not automatic. And that would, for an example, it would be O to A for the li for life, then to B. So B has a remainder. Then there are rights in the transferee, and that is the vested remainder, the contingent remainder, and the executory interest. So vested remainders have three. Um, there are three vested remainders, and that's the indefeasibly vested remainder, a vested remainder subject to divestment and a vested remainder subject to open. An indefeasibly vested remainder is where, when there is an ascertainable person not subject to a condition subsequent. So for example, that would be O to A for life, then to B. And an ascertainable person is alive and identifiable. Unborn children and heirs are not ascertainable. Then um, A... Vested remainder subject to divestment is O to B for life, then to D. But if D smoked marijuana during B's lifetime, then to E. A remainder, it's a remainder that is vested, but is subject to a condition subsequent. And then a, vest, a vested remainder subject to open is a vested remainder held by one or more living members of a group or class that may be enlarged in the future. That would be O to B for life then to D's children, 
when D has two children, so there's a possibility that D can have more children. And the, it's called like the class and it can grow. So the class is defined by the characteristics of the class members. So maybe it's a familial relationship or it's gender. Um, a person becomes a member of the class when born or if conceived and born alive. Um, and, but not if the person is conceived and dies at birth. The class closes in two ways. There's a natural closing, which is an event that prevents future... The, <laughs> Natural closing is when an event prevents further creation of members. So in the example above with O to B for life, then to D's children. Um, so the closing of that class would be when D dies. Then there's a rule of convenience and the class closes um, at the time designated in the conveyance for distribution. So maybe there's um, something in the document that says to... Um, you know, fix that. There, that gives the timeline. Um, okay, then you have contingent remainders, and that is a remainder that is unascertainable um, in an unascertainable person that is subject to a condition precedent. Um, an example of this is to be for life, then to the heirs of D, or to be for life, and then to D, if D becomes president. Um, what happens when there is an unsatisfied condition at the end of a life estate or a term of years? Under common law, the contingent remainder is extinguished and the interest holder no longer has an interest. Under modern law, the contingent remainder holder would be allowed to satisfy the interest. Um, okay, so there are two kinds of executory interests, and that's springing and shifting. And an executory interest is a fee symbol that is certain to become possessory. Um, a springing executory interest is an executory interest that cuts short the estate held by the transferor. So this is O conveys to C and her heirs if C returns from Spain. Then you have a shifting executory interest. So with springing, it goes back to O. With shifting, it's an executory interest that cuts short the estate held by the transferee. An example of this is O conveys to B and her heirs until humans land on Mars, then to D and his heirs. So this never goes back to O, this goes straight to D. And then... Okay, so a condition subsequent is different than a condition precedent because a condition precedent, precedent is when a condition must be met before the remainder can become possessory. A condition subsequent will bring an end to an interest. Then we have the rules furthering marketability. So the rule in Shelley's case is um, when an estate will turn a life, it, this will turn a life estate into a fee simple. So if it's 2A for life, then to A's heirs, they're just going to combine the life estate um, and turn it into a fee simple. Then you have the doctrine of destructibility of contingent remainders and that is any contingent remainder that has not vested at the termination of the proceeding of the freehold estate is destroyed. So B's so an example is O conveys to life to A for life, then to B and her heirs if B reaches 21 at A's death, B is under 21. So B's remainder is destroyed and O has the right of possession. Then you have the doctrine of worthier title and that is um O has a reversion rather than creating a future interest in the heirs. So um, O conveys to A for life and then to O's heirs. Again, O has a reversion um, 
and then it'll go to O's heirs eventually, I guess. Um, then you have the rule against perpetuities, which we'll get a little bit further in, but the rule is that no interest is good unless it must vest, if at all, no later than 21 years after some life and being at the creation of the interests. So to get a little bit more into the rule against perpetuities, so um, there are two examples here. So the first is valid, and that is O to A if A goes to the planet Saturn. And then an invalid one that violates the rule against perpetuities is that O to A if anyone goes to the planet Saturn. So the reason um, that the second one is invalid, um, okay, so the explanation for that is if O and A both die, we will know whether or not A went to Saturn within 21 years of death for the first one, the valid one. Um, if A goes to Saturn before A dies, then A's interest is vested. If A dies without going to Saturn, then A's interest forever fails to vest. Um, the second one is invalid because you wouldn't know um, whether or not someone would go to Saturn within 21 years. Um, so there are steps for the rule against perpetuity questions. Um, and first you want to identify the interest. Then you list the lives and beings. Then you consider whether anyone can be born after who may impact the vesting. Then you kill off all the lives and being the next day and add 21 years. Then you ask, is there any possibility that the contingent interest will vest after this point? So when you find a um, violation, you remove the later interest. So for example, O conveys to A, so long as the property is not used for residential purposes, then to B, you would take out the last part, then to B. Then you have the unborn widow um, doctrine, I guess, and that is when O conveys to B for life, then to B's widow for life, then to B's children living at B's widow's death. Um, B could marry someone at the time who is not alive at the time of the conveyance. So say that B, um, so this is conveyed, and then two days later, a woman is born who later becomes B's wife. So B and D later after it's legal, have a child F. F's interest vest when D dies, possibly more than 21 years after O and B die. Um, so that would be, an, um, if you like see widow, that's like a red flag for the um, a violation of the rule against perpetuities. Um, and then you have the fertile octogenarian. So regardless of sex, age, or physical condition, a living, a living person is always capable of having a baby thus allowing interest to vest after 21 years after all the lives and being at the time of the grant or deed. So some more red flags that violate the rule against perpetuities is that the condition is not personal to someone. So again, that goes back to the first example where it was like if A goes to Saturn versus if anyone goes to Saturn, um, the anyone going to Saturn is a violation. Then there is an identified age or time period of more than 21 years. Um, if there's an interest, if an interest is given to a generation after the next generation, so grandchildren, um, a conveyance requires that a survivor hold someone, or <laughs> sorry, a conveyance requires that a holder survive someone who is merely described rather than named, and an identified event that would normally happen within 21 years but might not. And lastly, that the holder won't be identified until the death of someone merely described rather than named. Okay, so lastly is concurrent ownership. 
And that, so there are three kinds. It's tenancy in common, joint tenancy, and tenancy by the entirety. Um, Each co-owner has the right to use and possess the entire property. So tenancy in common um, is an undivided fractional interest in property. Um, The proceeds of sales are proportionate shares, and it's freely alienable, transferable, and divisible. So when the language is ambiguous, you would, as- you would assume a tenancy in common. So to A and B, or to A and B as tenants in common. Then you have a joint tenancy, and this gives a right of survivorship. So that just means, um, so if A and B are joint tenants, when A dies, B gets, the, um, gets A's share. So it is not divisible or descendable. It transfers... Um, a, a transfer of the, their interest will sever the joint tenancy. An example of this is two A and B as joint tenants um, or two A and B as joint tenants with the right of survivorship. Um, it's really important that it says as joint tenants because, um, again, any ambiguous language will turn it into a tenancy in common. Then there's tenancy by the entirety, and this only goes to a married couple it also has the right of survivorship. Again, if the if one spouse dies, the other spouse gets their interest. Um, and it can only be ended by death, divorce, or agreement by both parties. And this, an example of this would be um, 2 A and B as tenants by the entirety. So to create a joint tenancy, there are four unities that must be met. It must be at the same time. It must be under the same title. It must hold equal interest, and it must have the right to possession. So same time is like the same day, the same title. Again, it has to be on the same document. Um, They all, um, every person has the exact same amount of interest, and it gives everybody the right to possession. So a joint tenancy can be severed if one co-tenant transfers their interest during their lifetime. Um... The majority of jurisdictions state that a lease severs the joint tenancy. So um, if a a very small amount of states will say that um, leasing out um, your property as a joint tenant will sever the joint tenancy. So then there's the title theory, which is that the mortgage is seen as the conveyance of the title to the mortgage. Sorry. Sorry. Um. Title theory is that the mortgage is seen as the conveyance of the title to the mortgage and it severs the joint tenancy. The mortgage survives the death of the mortgaging joint tenant and a tenancy in common is created with the mortgager and the remaining co-tenants. So, um, yeah, that's basically it. And then you have lien theory, which is that the mortgage is is viewed as a lien to secure the repayment of debt. Then we have a partition, which is an action to end the co-tenancy and distribute the assets. A partition in kind occurs simply when the property is physically divided equitably and fairly between the multiple owners. A partition by sale um, is that um, the property is sold and the proceeds from the sale are divided up among the co-owners. Um, And the court really avoids doing a partition by sale. So they only do a partition by sale in a few cases. Um, That's that the property cannot be conveniently partitioned in kind. 
the interests of one or more of the parties will be promoted by the sale and um, or if the interest of the other parties will not be prejudiced by the sale. Um, and then co-tenants have rights and duties to each other. Um, they have the right to use and drill the property as stated before. Um, each is entitled to a proportionate share of all rents and profits derived from the land. And each is responsible for the payment of his pro rata share of operating expenses. Um, so there are two rules for whether or not co-tenants have to pay rent. The majority rule is that no rent is owed by co-tenants in possession absent an ouster. Um, and an ouster is when a co-tenant in possession refuses to allow another co-tenant to occupy the property. The ouster is then liable for the pro rata share of the rental value of the individual's occupancy. Um, and then there's the minority rule, which is that the occupying co-tenant must pay rent to non-occupying co-tenants. Um, one concurrent owner may bring an action in waste against another conco concurrent owner of a property. Um, so again, that goes back to um, uh, permissive, voluntary, and ameliorative waste. And concurrent owners do not have to contribute to improvements made to the property by other concurrent owners. Um, and then co-tenants right and duties, um, when it comes to litigation, there are ways um, to like litigate these. So a contribution action is when a co-tenant seeks reimbursement from other co-tenants for certain expenses she has paid for the operation or maintenance of the property. So that's taxes, insurance, or mortgage. Then you have an accounting action, which is when a co-tenant seeks to obtain her share of rents or profits that the property has generated. Um, a majority of jurisdictions will also say that improvements and repairs can be included in an accounting action. Um, and a partition action is when the co-tenant seeks to both partition the property and have the court settle the financial affairs of the co-tenants. And that's it.